Harriet Tubman and her second husband, Nelson Davis, and family members took the ground that was right there, heavy and clay, made the bricks and built that house. Welcome home, y'all. My name is Journey Harris, and this is At Home, the podcast, a podcast where we explore concepts of home through the stories of people around the globe. And we've covered a lot of ground so far. This podcast began with us exploring home beginning with our mothers. Then we talked about home being a stylish and sacred place. In the last episode, I speak to what exists in between homes, and that was the mini episode, which I personally loved. But this episode is more of a case study. On my website, I mentioned that these episodes serve as historical evidence of the way we've lived thus far. But I'm also curious about the way people before us have lived, the homes of our heroes and historical figures. Over the past seven months, I've developed a really deep curiosity for one historical figure in particular, and that's Harriet Tubman, a woman who, like me, values home, values security, safety, and also value community and shared her home with her community. So in this episode, I'm joined by my colleague from the National Park Service, Kimberly Seswick. Kimberly is a wealth of knowledge, and I learned so much from her. I appreciate her for sharing Harriet Tubman's story with honesty and clarity because not everybody does that. Anyways, let's get into it. My name is Kimberly Seswick and I work for the National Park Service at Harriet Tubman National Historical Park in Auburn, New York. And there um, I am the senior interpretive specialist, which just means that I'm working on the ground setting up this new park. So you and I met this summer and it's really funny looking back that we haven't actually met in person because this infamous summer of 2020 has not allowed for that kind of interaction. But I had an internship and had the honor of working with the Park Service and working alongside you. And one thing that is is so interesting is that even though we didn't meet in person, I feel I still connected with you. And that was like the theme of the summer for me, that you can still connect with people and places that you have never physically been present in. And I learned so much about Harriet Tubman and I learned so much about Auburn, New York, which was a city that I didn't even know existed until I had this internship. And part of me felt extremely connected to Harriet Tubman the more that I got a chance to learn about her. And so I really wanted to talk with you today about her story and her whole story, it's, it's, I guess, a bit tricky having these kinds of conversations because Harriet Tubman is not here to speak for herself. You know, this is, this is what we have to do. We have to connect with and communicate with the things that people leave behind, whether that is offspring, um, whether that is like artifacts that they leave behind, or whether that is land or a home. And Harriet Tubman, she left a home behind. And on this show, we talk about home, not as the physical dwelling necessarily, but the place where people find comfort, provide comfort and all of that. Can you give us a walkthrough, um, Harriet Tubman National Historical Park, give us a walkthrough what one would see when visiting this site? Excellent question. 
Harriet Tubman, when we think of her, we think of her born enslaved. We think of the work she did during the Civil War. And then we kind of forget about her. And what happened was that she settled in Auburn, New York. And that land, her seven acre farm that she owned, is now being preserved by the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, which is our legislative partner, the legislative partner for the National Park Service. So when people come to the site, they can go to the visitor center that's there, which has information about her entire life. And it's really surprising how much more she did in her life that's not in our mainstream thought. And she continued after the Civil War for 50 years working um, to better her community and just our society as a whole. So from Auburn, she will fight for suffrage. She will fight for temperance. She raises money to send to the Freedmen's Bureau down south to start schools for Black children. She takes care of those within her community, and she starts the Tubman Home for Aged and Infirm Negroes. And that was her idea of taking care of those that could not care for themselves. So she wasn't 100% able to get it up and running because of financial issues. So she partnered with the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church and gave them the property adjacent to her property that she had purchased later in life. And they are the ones with Harriet's help started that first, maybe one of the first nursing homes in the United States. So when you go there after the visitor center, you can go on a tour with either a National Park Service person or someone from the Harriet Tubman home and go inside the home for the aged. And then we go over and look at the exterior of her house. The inside is um, still being worked on to be restored. So we can't go in there just yet. But it's something to touch her house because the original house that she purchased in 1859 burned to the ground about 1880. And One, we have artifacts from the fire because they just dug a ditch around the house and put all the debris in there. And that was found about 15 years ago. But to rebuild, Harriet Tubman and her second husband, Nelson Davis, and family members took the ground that was right there, heavy and clay, made the bricks and built that house. And that's where she lived the last 30 years of her life. So when you touch the brick, you're touching Harriet's home, but a home she made with her own hands, with the hands of her family. And from her home is where she actually started the first Tubman home for aged and infirm Negroes. She would take in anybody that needed help. She needed food, clothing, shelter. One neighbor called it a cacophony of people inside her house, and many of them even poorer than she was. So she didn't look at the financial aspects. She looked at the human aspects, and she did that for 50 years in Auburn. Wow. And I, I'm blown away at the fact that she served others for such a long time, uh, especially she passed when she was 93 years old, right? about that. She always padded her years a little bit. She wanted to be better once. So she was around the 91-year-old. And of course, born enslaved, we don't have birth certificates. There's right. just a note in the ledger of her owner who says that he had paid $2 for a midwife for Harriet's mother. And historians believe that that was for Harriet. Mm, okay. So how did Harriet Tubman end up in Auburn in the first place? That is the coolest 
<laughs> Coolest question. Um, this is almost like that seven degrees to Kevin Bacon thing that went around not too long ago. So Harriet Tubman, born enslaved, she's raised in in uh, the Chesapeake region of Maryland, and all of her family is there. What was rather unusual for Harriet Tubman's family is that even though some members, she had three sisters, sold south to the cotton plantations, but her parents were part of her nuclear family as well as her brothers. So this formed home for her, especially being close to her parents, yet they didn't owned by someone else. They live in property that doesn't belong to them and and their very lives are dictated by this person. But we see her mentioning quite a few times that she wanted to always, when she was leased out to other farms, that she always wanted to get back to her mother. And then about 1849, so she's in her mid to upper 20s, she hears through the grapevine that she's going to be sold because her owner had passed away and left his family deep in debt. So the biggest asset the widow had were the slaves on the farm. So she heard, Harriet heard, that she was going to be sold along with two of her brothers. So the three of them run and head north. But one of the brothers, who we believe was a new father, he couldn't make the break. Because when you run in that kind of a situation, you have to come to terms in your mind that you may never see your family again. And he could not do that. And so the three returned. And then Harriet left on her own a couple of weeks later. And she moved through parts of the Underground Railroad. We understand she did have help on that first trip and she gets all the way to Philadelphia. And then for her in Philadelphia, this is freedom, though she is not free, but to her, this feels like it. And she starts to miss her family. And so this is when she starts working with William Still, who many call the father of the Underground Railroad. And he organized a lot of the trips down south and helped those seeking freedom up to get up north. And so William Still and the work that Harriet's doing with him, Harriet will make over the course of 10 years, 13 trips back down to Maryland to bring her family north. But through William Still, Harriet is going to meet a woman by the name of Lucretia Mott. Now, Lucretia is a very famous abolitionist as well as a very famous suffragist. She's one of the five women in 1848 that hold the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls. And so through Lucretia Mott, Harriet is going to meet Lucretia Mott's sister, Martha Coffin Wright. And Martha Coffin Wright lives in Auburn, and her home is a site on the Underground Railroad. And through Martha Coffin Wright, Harriet Tubman will meet William Seward. Now, William Seward was the governor from the state of New York, and then he's going to be a senator from the state of New York to the U.S. Congress. And then he becomes Secretary of State to Abraham Lincoln. And so you can see this connection as it goes through how Harriet Tubman is meeting all these people. Turns out that William Seward's wife is part of the Underground Railroad. She opens her house as a station and many freedom seekers hiding there remembered it very fondly for its warmth and for the nourishment and care they received there. So this is how Harriet gets to Auburn. And then William Seward's wife, Frances, inherited a seven-acre farm on the outskirts of Auburn in the town of Fleming, New York. And that farm is what is sold to Harriet Tubman from the Sewards in 1859. 
And I really do hate dates, but this is too cool because the Civil War starts in 1861 and the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 made this treasonous for any sale to a fugitive slave of property. And yet, because William Seward is so high in the federal government, no one seemed to want to prosecute him for this. He should have been thrown in jail and fined money. But that sale goes through, and Harriet Tubman is a landowner of a farm in New York two years prior to the war. And that's where she will stay after the Civil War. She Right before the Civil War, she moves her parents down from Canada, where she had brought them and other family members because that was the safest place to be. And right before the war, she brings them down and then gets them settled in the house before she leaves for the war. And then that's, like I said, that's where she returns after the war and starts her philanthropy. So do you think that the community that she picked up along the way is the reason why she went to Auburn and not Canada? Because she could have settled in Canada with her her parents, right? Yes. And one of the funny one, the comments that was made by her mother is that it was too cold up in St. Catharines in Canada, just over the border. And so Auburn was a warmer place. <laughs> I'd always be. <laughs> Besides that, there was a very large Black community in Auburn at the time Harriet Tubman first arrives there. And the Underground Railroad had been going through Auburn for many years, decades prior to Harriet Tubman being there. It was actually a hub of the Underground Railroad. So a lot of people, freedom seekers, heading north settled in Auburn to the tune of about 300 souls by the time Harriet Tubman's there. And a lot of them come from where Harriet did the eastern shore of Maryland. So culturally, they were very connected with those people who had already settled here. So for them, Harriet and her family, this felt very much like home because of those folks that had already settled in Auburn. Okay, that makes sense. And what is what is Auburn like today? Since I never got a chance to go, what is, is it still? A, is that black community still in Auburn? Is there still like a, a reverence of Harriet Tubman and and her settling in that area? There is a lot of reverence for Harriet Tubman, and that is growing with uh, the amount of research that's been happening on Harriet Tubman, which is only like the last 15 to 20 years. She's really been kept alive, her story, through children's books. And it's only just recently that very serious scholarship has been done on Harriet Tubman. And that he has made sure that that connection with Seward, the Seward House Museum is right down the road from Harriet's uh, farm. The National Park Service, of course, is there with the new National Park. There's the Equal Rights Heritage Center, which also features Harriet Tubman. They have a statue outside. So she represents a lot to the the community. And it's a community that's very engaged with making sure their history and culture is preserved and presented to those who come through the community. So I would say it's um, it's a wonderful place. Um, once COVID's over, I, I hope you come so I can show you all the places that we talked about and you saw pictures of. And it is a pretty incredible spot. In fact, the, the town itself has um, uh, their motto, should I say, is uh, history starts here. It's history's hometown. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So we see she had her first home with her parents. Like that was a type of home for her, her family. 
she met people along the way, community along the way that helped create home for her along the Underground Railroad. She had her own home in Auburn, New York. Now, I'm also curious about her church home, her place of worship, AME Zion Church. So what was her relationship like with that church and why is it so important that, like, yeah, why is that church so important today? Awesome questions. It kind of goes back, we talked about Harriet Tubman first. When she's about 12, 13 years old, she is hit in the head by a two pound weight. She had gone to the store to pick up some supplies. And as she goes through this, it's a very tiny store. There was an overseer in the back of the store with his slave. And so his slave breaks free and runs out the door. And he, the overseer yelled at Harriet to stop that slave, but she didn't. And she picked up this two pound, sorry, he picked up the two pound weight, the overseer, and threw it at his slave trying to stop him and missed his slave and hit Harriet in the head. And it crushes in her skull. And from that time on, we believe she's suffering from temporal lobe epilepsy. So she'll have instances of just falling asleep and just she could be sitting there one second and the next minute sound asleep and be asleep for upwards of an hour. And then when she wakes up, she'll pick up and finish the sentence she went to sleep on. It's a very bizarre disease. Epileptic seizures will go along with this, violent headaches that she's plagued with the rest of her life. But the one thing, even today, people who suffer from temporal lobe epilepsy say they don't want to be cured because the other side effect is when they fall asleep, they have very vivid visions and dreams. Sometimes Harriet Tubman could tell the future. She said that she, on the Underground Railroad, knew when people were going to be setting traps to getting them caught. So she's very careful to listen to her dreams. And after a short amount of time, she credits the voice she hears during those dreams as her God speaking. So she has these one-on-one conversations with her God, and that guides her through her life. So she's a very spiritual woman. In enslavement, when she's rented out, she's introduced to the churches of the people she's working for. So she went to a number of different churches from Catholic to Protestant. And then she mixes all of her teachings with her native culture, and which is brought to her through her grandmother modesty and then her parents. And then she mixes it with what she hears during her dreams. So she has a very unique relationship, a very personal relationship with her God. And when she runs north, when she escapes, there is a church, the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, which calls itself the Free Church, the Freedom Church. And that church raised money to help those on the Underground Railroad. So the church in Auburn that the National Park Service owns is the church that Harriet Tubman's congregation built in 1890. And so Harriet Tubman attended the church until she passed away in 1913, and that is where her funeral was held. So the building that we have is very original, and there's a lot of people who their descendants attended, were part of that congregation, attended that church, and are still attending that church today. So so the congregation starts in 1838. Harriet doesn't get to Auburn until after 1850. Harriet will become a member of that church and uh, support the community through that church. Mm. 
One thing that I was intrigued about when I was doing research while I was an intern was about Harriet in her old age, especially because she created a, like you said, like one of the first nursing homes for Black people. She had it in her heart to take care of the elderly. And I was really curious about who took care of her when she was older, because this is someone I, I think now we would say like Harriet Tubman was a disabled woman. If you're going based off of, you know, her having epilepsy, this was a disabled black woman who was older and who spent a lot of time serving other people. I, I was really curious about who took care of her when she was older or if that was care that she received. She stayed in her own home till the last two years of her life, and her body failed her. Her mind was always there, but her body failed her. So she actually went into her own nursing home, and she had a number of different people who supported her um, while she's in the nursing home, paying, helping pay her bills. And it's rather telling to see that she knew that people, as they get that old, need a different kind of support. And so there she was able to get the medical help uh, that she needed until she eventually passed away. So she passes in, um, Mar on March 10th of 1913. And some of her last words were for women to keep on fighting for suffrage. And then she said that she was going on to another place to make room for us. So to her, her work wasn't over. She was just going somewhere else to prepare for us to join her. Mm. Wow. So how do you, um, in your work at the Park Service, what are some things that help you connect with her story more so that you're able to share that story with people like me or visitors at the park? Everyone has a very different way of connecting with a story. And for me, for Harriet Tubman, I suffer from migraines. So when I heard that this, the temporal lobe epilepsy, this head injury caused these violent headaches, that was the first. I'm like, how could she do all of that and suffer from these headaches? Because I have modern medicine. I can lay down and close the curtains. She can't. And yet she's still able to push through those headaches, get what she wants done done. So I had so much respect for her knowing the pain that she was in. And when she's in her probably late 70s, um, early 80s, she's in Boston and she's on the talk circuit. And she, a lot of bridge meetings she went to and talking. And she sees Boston General Hospital and she, Massachusetts General Hospital. And she goes over there and asks a doctor if she can get help for her headaches. And he, she explains to him what happened to her. And he says, well, lay down on the table. And she said she laid down like a lamb to the slaughter. And he goes to give her anesthesia and she refuses it. And she says, just do what you have to do. And he sawed her head open and lifted the bone. These are her words describing the operation. Now, let and me tell you something, Kim. <laughs> When I read this story at first, when I read this account at first, I was like, is Miss Tubman, is she stretching the truth here? Because I can't imagine that pain. That's And that's the, the fun part of history is that we weren't there. So we, we must trust the teller, you know? So I'm going to let you continue, but I just had to, I had to add my comment there because, oh gosh, that makes me wince in pain. I agree. And I was like, how could she do this? But when you're in that much pain, at that point, she said she couldn't sleep. It was a hard time seeing and the pain was just horrible. 
So the pain had to be that bad that she was going to submit to that type of operation. And I too, when I read that, I said, well, is she exaggerating? But the family has the bill from Mass General Hospital for that operation. And in thinking about today, a lot of head injuries, they do, and you're in surgery, the doctors don't want you to fall asleep. They want to put you kind of in a twilight zone so you can answer them and so as they go through the operation. And so she may have saved her own life by refusing the anesthesia because at that time it was mainly laudanum, which is an opiate-based drug, which would depress your circulatory system and your depression mind, your heart slows down. So she may have actually saved her life by remaining awake. And, but she said she felt an almost immediate relief with moving the, her bone that had broken so many years ago, lifting that off of her, off of her brain. And then, and that really, when you find that connection with some way, then you're open to hearing all the rest of the stories and delving into it. And that's what we try to provide for visitors to tell these different stories so that there may be one or two things that they can connect with Harriet Tubman on so that they're opening to listening to all, all of the other things that she did. And she never stopped, which is the other thing that I just am so in awe of her. It, she never finished something. She always was going to keep on going, making it better and keep on working. And we always think that the end of slavery in 1865 and the passage of the 13th Amendment frees her and, okay, isn't that great? There's nothing else to do. When in actuality, after the Civil War, many times the situations were worse than being enslaved. So the 13th Amendment has a loophole that states that slavery is outlawed. You cannot, it's forbidden unless you've broken the law. And so this opened up Jim Crow laws being passed, This um, the Black Codes which restricted those newly freed slaves and re-enslaved them through the prison system. And when we look at today and the disproportionate number of Black people in prison, this is, you can, you can just kind of trace this right back to the 13th Amendment, Jim Crow laws and Black codes, most of them overturned, but not till the 1960s with the Civil Rights Movement and so we're seeing a continuity of some of these issues that are still in our minds, but are based in history, as so many things are. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of research uh, to be done on that. And, and it's another thing that we try for the National Park Service is to put all the history out and let people make up their own minds and try to answer their questions the best we can. It's certainly point in directions of scholarly work, and hopefully people will want to delve in deeper. And just learning about Harriet Tubman and her work kind of makes you want to delve deeper and find out what happened. Yeah, you all do a really excellent job of presenting the truth and inspiring curiosity because what I took from Harriet Tubman, her legacy, um, one I could, you know, the one way I could connect with her was us both being Black women. But outside of that, I was really inspired that she had land that she owned because that's something that's important to me. And that's something that's especially relevant to me now when I'm in D.C. and you know, gentrification is a big topic. So having ownership of your home is like it's power, like it's it's wealth to a certain degree. And so she I was very inspired in that way. 
And I really do appreciate you guys' work at the Park Service for presenting the information like that, because through my research, when I was an intern, I learned that there is a lot of misinformation about Harriet Tubman, and that really skews and takes away from her being, her personality, the home that she had, the home that she created for other people. And it's it's important that we clarify history using what is presented to us. So one of my last questions for you is what is what is the process like of developing the story that would be told on the site? Um, what is that process of, of creating that story? Like, what is the research process like? What is the, the gathering process and the, the preservation process like? That is such a good question. It's for Harriet Tubman. It's a perfect example of what the National Park Service does. So we're going to work with the top scholars. And right now, the top scholar is Kate Clifford Larson, who wrote the book on Harriet Tubman, Bound for the Promised Land. So she did the legwork and the searching to get the information in that book. So we really rely on Kate Clifford Larson to um, answer our questions. We get her as a lecturer. We have her on meetings, interpretive meetings. So we ask her questions and get her feedback. She's so accessible and very kind. And I was was pleasantly surprised to, to know that. And then there's Dr. Douglas Armstrong, who works at Syracuse University, and he is the one who is in charge of the archaeology that was done at Harriet home site. So as again, I, I said, 1880, her house burns to the ground and the trench, they only found about 15 years ago. And there's over 60,000 artifacts. And through that, we get a good look at Harriet Tubman's life. We're finding a lot of medicine bottles, and we know that she was taking care of the ill. So the amount of medicine bottles versus what you would find at another site is going to compare and contrast that. We look at other things that we find. We found stemware and some fancier glasses, and we know she fought for temperance. Maybe these were gifts from one of her wealthy friends. We don't know. We do know Lucretia Mott, who visited Harriet's house one time, decided that Harriet should have her downstairs wallpaper. And so Lucretia Mott paid for that. She wrote her sister, Martha, when uh, like a year later, she visited Harriet's home and a lot of the wallpaper was dirty and some parts had peeled. And it was because Harriet had so many people in her house and so many children. She actually would take children out of the children's home in Auburn and raise them under her roof. They needed family, needed home, and not to be raised in an institution. And so Lucretia writes Martha, and she's very upset at first, talking about the condition of the wallpaper, but then says, you can can see she paused for a second to think, obviously wallpaper was not what Harriet Tubman needed to do her life's work. So even after all those years of knowing each other, there was still a gap between knowing what each other's life was like. And so these artifacts, what we find, gives us a window into Harriet Tubman's world. And behind the baseboard was found a brass plate, which turned out to be the printing plate for Harriet Tubman's calling cards. 
So it tells us that she actually would call on people to the point where she had her own calling card. And we have the plate found. It must have been on a bureau or a table up next to the wall. And something got pushed it off the back edge and it slipped right down behind that, that baseboard. So between research, archaeology, we meet with people in the community. We hold a lot of public meetings. We get a lot of input from everyone to see what are the stories that are going to interest people, how much research still needs to be done, what areas we work with colleges and universities, and you yourself, you know, your input that you gave us during your internship really helped because we also need all different age groups and all different people in our community to give us the guidance of what they want for interpretation and what information they would like to know. And so it's a never ending work because research never ends. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunate Harriet Tubman was illiterate, so we don't have her exact words, but Sarah Bradford at the time trying to probably help Harriet Tubman financially wrote her biography. Then some years later, she decided to write another biography, and it's actually Sarah Bradford's exaggerations of Harriet Tubman's words that have gone into our history books. But it's very telling as well how she exaggerated, where she exaggerated, and look at the times. You know, you're getting into more romantic time at the later 1800s, so novels with more exaggerated facts is going to sell more. And so instead of a historical piece, it's more of a novel. You know, and we can't take it right out of, we can't blame Sarah Bradford. She's trying to sell books. She's trying to give the proceeds to Harriet Tubman so she can continue her work. So Sarah Bradford, I think, is my own personal opinion, trying to exaggerate the truth to help Harriet, to sell Mm -hmm. more. She's not a historian. Got you. So how can people connect with your work at at Harriet Tubman National Historical Park? How can people visit, whether that's virtually or one day in person? We hope one day very soon in person. My recommendation is to go to the National Park website for Harriet Tubman National Historical Park, and that is www.n es.gov forward slash H-A-R-T. I am so grateful for Kimberly for joining me and also for helping me fall in love with history again, because I promise y'all I did not enjoy history before this internship. National Park Service, grateful for them as well, and Greening Youth Foundation. Quick plug, they're the organization, the Black-led organization, that placed me in my internship at the Harriet Tubman National Historical Park. If you are interested in oral history, in historic preservation, in storytelling, in research, please consider an internship with the National Park Service. This is not an ad. I genuinely want people to experience all they can from these types of opportunities. And I will link some internships, especially those associated with Greening Youth Foundation, in my website at homethepodcast.com. Thank you to all who have left reviews and ratings and sent me positive feedback. And thank you to everyone who screenshot their Spotify wrapped results and shared with me that at home, the podcast was one of your top podcasts. That makes me so happy. 
Continue to share the show with your friends and thank you for listening to At Home, the podcast. Stay safe, be well, stay curious, love on your elders, and come back whenever you feel like it because you are always welcome here. Bye.